Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week we're going to look at the government's plan to slowly reopen society from April 12th onwards. Is the government moving quickly enough? What will this mean for Irish businesses and the wider economy? And with the pace of the vaccine rollout programme ramping up, when might the government begin withdrawing the financial supports that are currently propping up so many parts of our economy? Helping me to answer these and other questions, I'm delighted to be joined on the line by Danny McCoy, Chief Executive of Employers Group IBEC, and by Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times. Cliff, perhaps I'll begin with you. Just run through the main points of the reopening plan announced yesterday by the government. Yeah, sure, Kieran. Uh, well, it's in terms of the economy and business, it's uh, it's the long goodbye to lockdown, I guess, and very slow and cautious progress planned over the over the coming months. So we will see uh, house building resuming in the construction industry as part of a kind of a phased reopening of that sector, but not a lot else from the economic point of view going to happen uh, until until next month at the earliest. We're told at the end of this month, consideration will be given to reopening parts of the retail sector that are closed at the moment, non-essential retail, garden centres and the like. But even that will happen on, a, on, on what's called a phased basis. So maybe click and collect will start immediately and uh, moving on then to uh, you know, fuller opening of, of, of shops. And then it won't be till the end of May that consideration will be given then to a wider reopening of hospitality uh, for the summer season and uh, still some confusion about when exactly that might happen, when inter-county travel might be allowed, for example, which really is you know essential if there's going to be any kind of a holiday season, and when restaurants and pubs uh, might be allowed open. Some upset in that sector yesterday uh, about the lack of mention in uh, the Taoiseach speech. I think they're, they're feeling pretty unloved at the moment, some indications that restaurants mightn't be fully open till, till July. So on the one side, business, I think, uh, a bit frustrated with the lack of, of clarity and landmarks uh, and even indications of what metrics might apply to reopening in the months ahead. In, on the other side, the government saying, look, we, we can't give absolute clarity because we, we all know the problems with the virus. We've been caught before. Uh, we need to hold on for another month or so. Danny McCoy, what's IBEX's view on the lifting of restrictions? Is it too slow? Um, it's probably appropriate, actually, given the uncertainty with the virus and where we are with the um, vaccination rollout. What we were really looking for was a momentum, gradual momentum, and we see some of that with the return of construction. Disappointing, that's all they said is the first phase, you know, to shorten. This should nearly go to a weekly rolling uh, relaxation. So we weren't expecting a really big bang. Probably the click and collect is probably the one of the more disappointing ones, I would have thought. Uh, you know, that's what we were asking for on this phase, construction back, click and collect. On the expectation, a bit like the chain of a bicycle, we know that these first rungs have to go through so everyone else can expect to start spinning a little later on. And the sooner the first phase starts, the better. So not too bad in, in, in that regard, but a fair bit of insensitivity of not giving more clarity beyond the first twist of the, the first rotation, to use my analogy. So what would you have liked them to do? Uh, you would have liked precise dates in May, let's say, for when personal services or click and collect and retail could begin again? Well, going into yesterday, we anticipated um, a particular rollout of the vaccine for different categories. So I suppose the the changing mid-course uh, to the age-related one, I think, is nothing wrong with it in itself other than the surprise of it coming because it has knock-on consequences. There's those with expectations, particularly in the trade union movement, around teaching, around the guards and so on, which 
needs to be secured because we learned anything by not communicating with the teacher unions at the start of the year. We had the calamity of the, the length of time to get ourselves back into a sequence of going back to school. That appears to be repeated again. And that's, you know, that's kind of disappointing. But to answer your question, we would have liked to have seen a kind of a connection between proportions um, of vaccination to the type of release. That would help people would also get a bit of buy-in because, you know, one of the features globally we need to watch, societies that are quickly going to surplus, um, that sounds like a good thing, but actually what if it's a fall off in demand? <laughs> you know, that we could be seeing that the take-up of the vaccination is not going to hit the kind of highs that we would need, you know, 70 is always thrown out there, but that's that's not, a, you know, 70% is in itself not precisely a number, it's just a kind of a, a guide. It depends on how strong the effectiveness of the vaccine is, how infectious the disease that you're uh, dealing with, and it also then that determines the proportion of the population. So the good news is the vaccines appear to be really powerful, they seem to be really doing their job, which gives you some slack on the proportions that would be need it uh, for taking it up but then you got to take a look at the at the nature of the infectiousness of the variant so you know we, we had all those things in the mix we should be worried globally that people might not reach the critical masses here in the time frame so business needs to be worried to be not too tied on a particular percentage as well so there does need to be some judgment uh, I, th- I thought this was better than normal actually the communications was a lot better we didn't like some of the messages, but you can't really get into the, you know, and I'd have been out there previously about Neffet five days coming and hitting us with surprise. I thought that was a bit better handled, but disappointed that maybe an acknowledgement of some of the enterprises uh, as to what to expect next, or at least a promise to be back to them in a rolling, you know, one week, 10 days, two weeks kind of phenomenon. Mind you, the retail sector seemed to be blindsided by this. Yeah, the retail sector uh, certainly were hoping for for a more opening. But I think, if you know, it, it's very hard for the individuals involved. But if you stood back and take a look at where the numbers are, where the case numbers are, and the that window of potential for these to jump up again, I suppose, you know, appropriate caution might on this occasion be in play. I, I've been quite critical in the last couple of weeks about this idea of, um, a surplus of caution, right? So business people, like a surplus of caution is you never do anything. You need appropriate caution, not surplus of it. You don't go along on caution. You need to get that balance right. And I think over the last couple of months, we've we've tended to be overly cautious. So, um, but right now, the momentum appears to be to be there. But there's still there's still going to be slips between cup and lip. Um, and the other feature I'm sure we'll come to in the economy, uh, Kieran, is that changing of the vaccine rollout is an intergenerational issue now. Other societies can make an argument for actually vaccinating younger people faster uh, for activity and for getting them out and for spending and for dynamism and for being, you know, for being ready to actually do the jobs over the summertime uh, in the hospitality sector, etc. When you couple that with house prices coming in quite strong, you know, one generation will say, well, here are the guys with their houses paid off or nearly paid off, their pensions, they've had their careers, and now they're being prioritised on the way out. So expect more of that coming through in the next couple of weeks as well. Yeah, Cliff, there seems to be concern uh, at NEFET level about uh, the potential for a fourth wave. Um, strong warnings to government 
about that by reopening too fast we might be opening the door to that um, talk to us a little bit about that yeah i guess the the vaccines have kind of changed the debate a bit so last year this time last year we were kind of arguing about you know how could we live with the vaccine what could we reopen safely you know might we have to close again then after a while but as Danny said, that the evidence seems to be, the early evidence, particularly if you look at countries like Israel, seems to be really powerful in terms of what the vaccines can do in terms of case numbers and hospitalizations and deaths, of course. So it is, I guess, easier to make the argument now, as the government is doing, uh, that we really have to av- avoid this fourth wave, uh, let the vaccines kick in uh, and then enter the summer with, with you know, really low or falling at least case numbers uh, and deaths, uh, and then allow a reopening on the basis that uh, once open, businesses hopefully won't have to close again. Uh, you know, we we are looking obviously there's huge uncertainty here, and you know there is nervousness in government even looking forward to next winter uh, about what situation we might be then and and what protections we might have and what variants might be and, and all the things that we've heard discussed. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, when you look at the evidence of of, uh, of, of the UK to some extent and, and, and more Israel, there, there's very significant reopenings happening there, uh, particularly in Israel. Uh, the data there would suggest that, you know, you get towards half, 40%, half of the uh, population vaccinated. And even if you start to reduce restrictions then, uh, that the case numbers then can still be on a very sharp downward trend. Uh, it, it may not be that uh, just having the vulnerable population vaccinated is enough, but if you get the vulnerable population and a decent chunk of the uh, of the general population done, it, it does appear that you know you start to see the benefit fairly quickly then. So I guess the the strategy for the government is you know risk on popularity now, risk annoying businesses now, risk locking up people now, but on, on the hope that you know come summer they will be able to loosen things up reasonably quickly uh, and by avoiding a fourth wave, hopefully get places open and, 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 and keep them open. Possibly, I'm sure, with restrictions still in place, possibly with some sectors still still closed, you know, events, wet pubs or whatever. I don't know what the outlook is for those, maybe looking out later in the year. But the, but the bulk of the economy, the big, the retail sector, have a staycation season, have restaurants open you know, get the tax revenue going and, and, and start to turn things around in the second half of the year. Danny McCoy, what is the future for the likes of wet pubs who have been closed since uh, March of last year and the events sector, uh, for example, um, and the travel sector as well? I mean, when, when do you think air travel is going to resume in you know some significant way? I think we're seeing from around the world, particularly in the States and um, intra-travel in, in significant jurisdictions in Asia is... The depth of air travel is is far too exaggerated. When it comes back, it'll come back strong. Uh, my own view is I don't believe there's any demand for anything that's actually permanently suppressed. I know we can argue about this, about the new normals and so on. I believe the demand side will come back with the same level of intensity pre uh, that we had pre-COVID. Um, that's just a, a personal view. So I'm I'm pretty sanguine about the demand's going to be there. What's the impact for the supply side? You know, what's the long-term damage? Will the planes be there? Will we, in Ireland, have the routes that we had before? You know, going back to hospitality again, to the wet pub question you asked, will they be in business? You know, when people say, just around the kitchen table, saying, that was just too precarious. Um, you know, we're at a whim of, of kind of congregation restriction. We might use our assets in a different way. 
You know, we might re, we might go into a different segment of the of the hospitality. So I, I would expect that we will see a huge fallout in the number of wet pubs that will be uh, there after the event. So I think most of the damage you'll see be on the supply side. Um, I really think the demand for aviation services, when you look at what's happening right now in the States, is getting really strong again. And that's probably one of the big kickers from yesterday. This notion that you're going to increase the international quarantine for what are dubious benefits in an island that isn't locked down. Uh, you're starting to preclude some of our bigger strategic interests who will be vaccinated most likely um, and forcing them into quarantine. We. This could be a really own goal if we go down the route of putting France and the USA, for instance, onto those quarantine lists. I really hope we avoid that because the benefits of it just do not justify the damages that will cause to us. Well, Joe Biden was talking about 100 million uh, vaccines, wasn't he, in his first 100 days? I think he's now looking at 200 million. And I actually know people in America, Irish people in America, who've had both their doses at this stage. So presumably there's a way around that in some sort of certificate uh, vaccine passport or certificate or call it whatever whatever you want, that if you arrive into the country, you've had your two doses, off you go. Yeah, that's what I mean by the abundance of caution. You know, that, that letting this take a grip that uh, caution itself is, is some kind of merit. Uh, appropriate caution, definitely. And we're getting to the point there where this is not appropriate caution. It was dubious about its effectiveness, um, but to close down what is a globalised economy and to be opening later than others is really damaging. And then just the diplomacy um of you know not not to not to stereotype but here i go is like we're depending on france to be a port for our brexit problems right now um we saw you know countries can be slow to uh let through the traffic coming from jurisdictions like let's let's wake up and and say, realize we're not just talking about a public health crisis here there are all kinds of dimensions going on. And so those risk factors cannot be just handed over to the singular dimension of the public health. And I think that's where we're possibly losing the plot. The government needs to take a lot more control back on this. And I think the first sign of this will be the international quarantine and the extension of that list. IBEC on Monday had its latest economic outlook report out, Danny. You're forecasting that GDP growth this year will be of the order of 3%. And that's down a couple of percentage points on your previous report just a, a few uh, months ago. Just tell us why you think we're going to see that kind of a. I mean, that's a fairly substantial drop in activity. Well, you could come from the other. You could come from the other end and say three percent is a fairly substantial growth rate on an economy that that didn't fall in GDP terms, hasn't fallen in GDP terms for over a decade, because we know the economy grew by three percent last year as well on the strength of the export FDI-type model we have here. So so 3% is good, but I suppose the story within the story is we thought that we would have a 5% growth uh, for this year. And so the prolonged um, the prolonged restrictions, I think, have, have dampened that by two percentage points, which, you know, is in the order of about 8 billion euros uh, when you say that. But actually, going back to, to the last part, uh, I'd be more worried now for a forecast if we get into a situation of putting our bigger trading partners uh, into quarantine lists. Um, that could be much more significant for investment decisions and for the future. And as you know, Kieran, as well, we might get onto it later on. We know the corporate tax regimes are going to be changing. And I think um, if if I saw coming earlier today, Biden has flagged that the minimum corporation tax that he's thinking about is 21%. 
which means that if you're paying 12.5% in Ireland as a US company, you're going to have to add on the other 8.5% to bring it back up to um, that level. So we're seeing the corporate tax rises in the UK as well. So a lot of a lot of pressure here. You know, at one level, we don't want to declare victory too soon on the COVID problem, but we know in the final stretch of it, so we shouldn't be putting down roadblocks uh, to ourselves on future challenges that will happen within this calendar year. So just on the Biden changes that you mentioned uh, earlier, which we've had some detail on it today, what impact do you think that's going to have on American multinational investment in Ireland? I mean, is the stuff here, is that safe? Um, and what about new investment? Yeah, so, you know, let's talk in generalizations here because uh, how could I know? The, fir- the first thing to say is society, when, when the globe increases the minimum corporate tax rate, um, this is potentially good news for Ireland on the basis that we've arrived already. We already have such substantial investment and such a high standout level of GDP. Nobody can undercut us. Right, there's no aspirant coming behind us is going to steal our lunch on the basis of lower corporation tax rate. That never gets mentioned in Ireland because we still see ourselves as aspiring. But you know, in fact, now it's a retention play, and so that's pretty good news if you can't be undercut. But what it means, uh, Kieran, is that the corporation tax is going to move on to other items. It'll be direct expenditure related to innovation. It'll be the investment into your universities to provide that kind of seed of ideas. You know, the, you'll need you'll start to see countries trying to pick winners. You'll notice the UK simultaneously putting up their corporate tax rate also ditched their industrial strategy. They're going to head back to trying to pick winners and directly put money into uh, sectors, you know, so it won't be the corporate tax will be the decider anymore. And we're a bit flat-footed on that because we've been singularly dimensioned on using the kind of tax frame idea. Uh, so we need to going to get, you know, back into those e- ecosystem things. You know, and that, that, that includes the hospital system. You know, one of the features that might have been shown true here is, do we have a hospital system fit for purpose uh, that can stay up? You know, everybody's applauding. Um, that's what's going on, and that's from the efforts in, in a crisis. But we've still got a hospital system that has the waiting lists, has the frustrations. And so these kind of locational factors when you're competing and you can't compete on tax anymore, that's the kind of new dimension. We need to get really more slick on those characteristics. They're important for the indigenous population, but they're also important metrics for investors and sending people to uh, to come and live in Ireland. So tax is probably going out the window so much as a, as a competitive force, but it shouldn't be seen as, as absolutely disastrous for us given where we've, we've arrived at. Other factors will be important. Also moves at play in Europe as well around corporate tax, isn't that right? And France certainly wants to introduce a, a digital tax if power has been pushing for it. So there's a pincer movement <laughs> taking place, if you like, on the one side, the United States, and on the other side, agitation in Europe. Where does that leave Ireland and where is that whole OECD process that seems to have been trundling on forever? Where Where is that at and what's it going to deliver? So as I kind of saying there at the start, you know, possession being nine-tenths of the law. So you start off with a default position where you have it here. And, you know, a bit like in soccer parlance, this is your 2-0 up. And you go wildly banding, chasing around, the, you know, the pitch. We're used to being 1-0 down in Ireland um, in terms of being an aspirant to try to build up. So we, we have to reflect that we've actually arrived 
And the question is now, how do we lose it? Um, so in that pincer movement, as you say, if, if, we're, if we're crafty here, it's actually potentially to our advantage in that we can solidify it. But we have to be much more aggressive on those other dimensions uh, in terms of the educational system, the health system, the housing, all of those things that matter to our society anyhow, but have left us exposed in terms of metrics and when people are looking at Ireland and how it's performing. Um, the OECD process, as you said, that has two parts to it, um, Kieran, as they said, pillar one, pillar two. Pillar one is about when you raise the money um, around the world, how do you get a formula to reapportion some of that? Um, that's going to be tricky because it's a, you know whatever rate you go for, whatever level of activity, will generate a global stock of corporate tax. Uh, so it's a zero-sum game. Somebody's going to be losing, some are going to be gaining. We will lose in that, clearly, because we're exaggerating at the moment. So we will lose on, on the money in that front. But that's l- less likely to emerge because it's got its inherent problem is getting everyone to sign up. There's going to be equal amount of losers as winners. The second one, though, is what we just talked about there in the Biden administration, this pillar two, which is a global minimum corporate tax rate. And that could have gone. That could have been a kind of a globalized corporate tax rate, where you've one low jurisdiction, let's say Ireland, and one high jurisdiction like the U.S., and then that you would you would blend between the two to come to that number, twenty percent or whatever, let's say. But they haven't gone that route. They've gone jurisdiction by jurisdiction, and so the argument is it'll have to be minimum in each country, um, and that actually would mean if the minimum global corporate tax rate is higher than 12.5%, it means that the 12.5% branding that we have will have to rise. And it also means the capacity to do R&D tax credits, the knowledge development box, which was half of that 12.5%, the six and a quarter awkward number, can't do that anymore in that world. The second pillar looks like it'll happen. First pillar, uh, I'd be surprised uh, that they'll get that over the line. Cliff, it's going to impact our corporation tax revenues, and they've been very strong, obviously, on, on the last few years. Um, how much potentially could we lose in terms of corporation tax each year? It's a bit of a, a bit of a you know pick your number up, to be honest with you, Kieran. Uh, I mean, I think what happened today is is really significant in that you know as Danny was saying, there's the OECD process and the two bits to it. Uh, but what Joe Biden has come out and said today is that. Um, he, he believes, and if he can get through Congress, that there should be a minimum rate of 21% set for U.S. companies as a matter of U.S. law. Now, I presume we presume that means they will also support a high rate for the global minimum tax rate at the OECD talks. But as most of our investment comes from the States anyway, um, you know, this is going to hit us if, if this goes ahead, whatever happens at the OECD. So... I think that's probably more a question uh, rather than hitting our corporate tax revenue straight away. The issue there is probably more um, affecting our ability to attract companies, as Danny said. I mean, we're going to have to change our game and rely on different things to attract companies to invest here. Uh, You know what that's going to mean for investment and jobs in the years ahead. You know, who, who knows? In terms of the other part of the OECD talks, the Department of Finance have said that you know they might cost us eight hundred to two billion, eight hundred million to two billion a year in in, in corporate tax revenue. Um, but but I think what's happening on the minimum tax rate is is really much more significant. Uh, very hard to put a figure on it, but really fundamental in terms of the way we've 
you know, the, 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 the tactics we've used to attack, to attract companies here and, and what we're going to have to do in future. And as Danny said, becoming much more reliant on other, other, other things like third level education, uh, research and all those kind of things. You know, and if you look back at what's happened here over the last few years, we have kind of kicked a touch on some of those things. You know, the funding of third level education, I guess, perhaps being the most obvious of those. You know, the Cassell's report was done years ago. There's been proposals to introduce fees or pay for it by taxation or whatever. And, you know, and maybe in terms of what Danny was saying about the young people of Ireland being affected by the uh, by the pandemic, uh, maybe expecting them to pay uh, third level fees as well is something maybe we shouldn't now do. Maybe it, it is something we're going to have to pay for from general taxation. But whatever happens, we need to decide because research spending here, particularly you know postgraduate, doctoral, postdoc level, is, is is just well below what's happening in mainstream European countries now. And I suspect that's that's an issue for a lot of Danny's members. Cliff, does this potentially give the government scope to increase the level of corporation tax? I mean, if it's no longer if twelve and a half percent. Um, is no longer kind of a, um, a selling point to American companies that they're going to have to pay 21% anyway. Um, does this mean that the government could potentially nudge up the corporation tax rate or do we do we stay wedded to 12.5%? Well, I, I think the official statement for now is we're, you know, we remain fully committed to 12.5%. The reality is, as Danny said, if there's a, you know, if there's a global rate set at a higher level and everyone else has agreed to it, uh, and particularly if there's a higher rate set in the US where most of our investment comes from, there's, there's no point in uh, leaving our rate at 12.5%, I wouldn't think. Uh, you know, maybe there might be arguments about where exactly it would be set, but uh, I, I think there's a likelihood it could, go, it could go up. And if it does go up, you know, the question then is what's the balance then between, you know, the investment you lose perhaps uh, and, and the tax you gain from the companies that are here? And, you know, the huge inward movement of intellectual property assets in over, over the last few years. Now, a lot of the profits emerging from them is, are, are kind of sheltered at the moment because of tax allowances. But those allowances are going to run out. And if we can keep hold of those IP assets for the long term, then, you know, there is the possibility of a lot more tax coming from them. So it's it's really hard to know where it's going to land. But I think the importance of what's happened today is that it, it puts a big question mark over our tactic of using low tax to, to attract investment here. Danny, let's go back to COVID matters. When do you think the government might be able to begin withdrawing the substantial financial supports that they've been using to prop up the economy um, since last March? Um, all going well, I think, towards the um, end of Q3, I would think would be the more realistic um, time frame. If, there's a big if, if that kind of, particularly given its hospitality and congregations, if they manage to get some cash-filled summer, because if they don't, then they're into the winter months. And uh, so if, for some, there may need to be you know longer life support. And then there's a phenomenon that I know the governor of the central bank won't want me mentioning it again, but, you know, there is zombie. There are zombie businesses out there that... Um, won't won't die till the life support is uh, is turned off, and so the government, I think, will probably come to that decision. I'd say towards the end of Q three, if everything goes to plan at the moment, um, and I, th- I think they're committed to to staying that length of time. I know they've only committed up to is at the end of June at the moment, but I can see another quarter given what we just heard yesterday. So many zombie companies are out there, in your opinion. I really don't know, you know. Um, I really don't know, and it's 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 difficult. 
it's a di- it's a difficult call. Some of them, some of them though, I may have said earlier on, could be in the dynamic where the individuals have decided that yeah, I could open up again. This thing could work again, but I'm not going to expose myself to the uh, the precariousness aspect of using my time and assets and family's uh, livelihood to something that can be shut down on a whim. You know, there is an irony for the employers' organisation. It's uh, going back to 1913 and the Great Lockout. It's the businesses that have been locked out on this occasion, not the employees. That's an interesting point. Cliff, how does the government decide which businesses to support and which ones to let go effectively? Yeah, it's a very difficult question. Well, I think what's going to happen is the sectors are going to be reopened in, in whatever order they're reopened. Companies are going to get... Uh, get some money for for a few months after they're reopened. I presume wage subsidies will continue for a period of time, perhaps on a declining level, uh, and and there'll be re- special restart grants and reopening supports. But after a period of time, those supports are gonna are gonna have to be gradually switched off. Uh, and the question is, you know, after you, as you turn the life support machine off, uh, which of the which of the companies are going are going to be able to continue or not? And to an extent, that's going to you know it's going to be left to the market. I think it was interesting to see in the uh, rural development strategy published earlier in the week uh, that there's talk of uh, basically repurposing a lot of the pubs in rural Ireland into uh, into community centres, into into working hubs or whatever. And I think that is a kind of a tacit admission that a lot of those aren't going to come back into business. Uh, there's a lot, you know, old, old, a lot of them would have been owned by owned by families, uh, older people in a lot of cases. And as Danny said, a lot of them are probably going to say, unless they get some support from the state, maybe to repurpose, a lot of them are not going to reopen as pubs. Uh, then you have the retail sector, you know the problems in that sector, the low margins uh, that were that were a problem anyway. And uh, the whole problem now facing our city centre. So, you know, a lot of them are have already gone into examinership or liquidation. I think a lot of the smaller ones are, are going to follow down that route Um follow down that route as, uh, you know, as, as the reopening takes place. And then you have the separate problem with the companies reliant on, on sectors like, uh, like travel and events where kind of the future is a bit clouded. I mean, I, th- I think very interesting to hear Danny say that he believes demand will return pretty much as, as it was beforehand. Um, you know, there, there has been some talk that people may change their patterns, but, but, but perhaps they won't. Um, I remember reading a uh, an investment brokers report at the start of the year saying everyone would be queuing up to get on planes in the middle of the year. Now that's been delayed a bit because of the variants and the resurgence of the of the virus. But maybe by the end of the year or early next year, people will be queuing up at the airport again, and travel will have resumed, and and things will be back to more of the pre normal perhaps than we might have anticipated. That's going to be one of the really big debates over the next few months. Danny, you can see how you know hotels and the hus- certain se- elements of the hospitality sector could actually have a very good summer if they're allowed to reopen with um, you know domestic demand. But there are sectors that uh, Cliff has touched on there, like aviation uh, and the events sector, for example, that are going to continue to struggle for a little while to come. So does the government have to uh, refocus its efforts uh, and maybe adapt the supports for those sectors to keep them going for a little while longer until a more normalised level of business comes back? Yeah, I, th- I think they should. I'm not predicting that they will, okay? Um, so, you know, clear- clearly, and it's easy for us, obviously, um, sitting on the ditch here, uh, calling the game. Uh, it can be more difficult to actually get that nuance. Um, 
in, in terms of the attributes, but I think they probably would leave the blanket ones in place longer than trying to get into the forensic uh, part of it. But, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's one of those dimensions that in a lot of the conversation we're having, one of the things that surprised me is that the Commission on Taxation and Welfare hasn't been up and running faster because a lot of what we're talking about here right across is do you have the funding model and the patterns and one of those things that I know is dear to your heart, um, Kieran, social partnership. Uh, one of the things about precariousness that we've seen in the labour market is having a welfare system that actually can help individuals at the point of their distress. And precariousness has been shown to be not just a low income uh, phenomenon, it's also for people with higher incomes. So I think the PRSI system is definitely in play. Um, and the sooner we would see that, the better for, you know, Cliff made mention of the Cassell's report, that was using the PRSI system of an increase from 10.7% to 11% on employers as part of that contribution. Um, we're going to see a lot more of that. Um, and the sooner we get to that conversation, the better, because even though I represent business, business enlightened her to know that, you know, the future is going one direction. It is better to get that out on the table and see what those costs are on, on the wage bill. Because right now, there are so many costs coming at the wage bill. You know, the right to disconnect, remote working, all of the leave arrangements, the living wage out there, the statutory sick pay. These are all either explicit costs on the wage bill or contingent costs on it, uh, depending on take up. It'd be much better to get this in a one story, uh, know what the price of it is and, and get that kind of social wage. And then it's consequence for the actual wage determination together. And you've seen this week, the Tonishta also setting up a kind of a taboo subject for lots of people, which is a review group on collective bargaining uh, in our industrial relation context. Like for the, for the listeners, this, you know, for those who think it's 2005, uh, I can assure you the world has, has moved on from when we had the Industrial Relations Act of 2004, which was struck down eventually the Ryanair judgment. People forget Ryanair recognizing trade unions right now. Um, and Joe Biden has very firmly swung that pendulum to collective bargaining rights, trade union recognition, minimum wage in the public sector, telling companies like Amazon to stay out of the workplace when their workers want to collectively uh, negotiate. The Supreme Court's likely to strike down the sector employment orders that we have here in collective bargaining, the opposition party, the now opposition parties, all of them had put forward a constitutional referendum in on collective bargaining. So you can whistle and stay in the dark, but I think what we're seeing with IBEC um, in that space, we're going to have to have that conversation about ensuring whatever industrial relations we have allows our economy to competitive to be competitive and not throw the baby out the bathwater. But saying no or never, even Ryanair capitulated on that front. Yeah, sure. A couple of quick ones for you, Danny. One is the future of the office. Yeah, I again, as I said, I think demand still remains in place. I'm sure we'll have a blended office um, environment. But after a while, you know, as, as adaptive learning, you may start to see uh, people come back to the office in, in a lot more scale. For instance, you know, um, people have ended up in home by surprise and nobody asked home whether they wanted the office here or not. And you might get the equal push of home pushing people out of this environment. You know, you used to say, bring all of yourself to work. Uh, nobody wanted to bring all of work to home. Um, and so you may see 
you may see a, a push more than a pull factor uh, back to the office. It won't, it won't be the same, clearly, um, but I don't think it'll be any way as devastating as the new normals are talking about now. And Brexit, are we over the worst of Brexit or is there more to come? I think we are over the worst of Brexit um, in terms of logistics and so on. There's a lot of noise, but the signal is pretty clear and, and getting a bit of time. But more fundamental for uh, our neighbourhood is the consequences that the constitutional consequences that uh, Brexit has unleashed on the island of Britain to start with, uh, and the Scottish referendum, and then the Northern Ireland uh, Assembly elections next year. It's game on in a changing political uh, landscape. And, you know, to Cliff's point earlier on about intellectual property, um, all of that needs a solid legislative platform on which people make investments are certain that the actual unit of analysis in which you put your investment into will actually be in place. And, you know, we won in no small part in 2015 because of the uncertainty that the Scottish referendum had caused in 2014. Brexit just compounded it. And so the certainty that Ireland provided uh, during that phase uh, is testament to when constitutional things start to go up in the air that investors shy away. And so as a business community, we really need to be engaged in the debate on the all-island, shared island dimension. It doesn't necessarily have to go into a unification issue, but does, it's, it's already a live issue in terms of the solidity of that platform. Um, Cliff, maybe final word to you on Brexit. Uh, obviously, there was a, it was a pretty tortuous start to the year for a lot of people in terms of bringing goods in. We're seeing lots of issues for people who are ordering online and having customs issues and so forth. How, how's it going to play out for the rest of this year? It's interesting, all right. I mean, as Danny said, maybe the uh, the initial problems are starting to ease a bit for, for Irish companies. But you have to think, I, I suppose, two things come to mind. One is that some of those some of those impacts will continue and that, and that, you know, we saw an extraordinary fall in imports from the UK in, in, in January and exports to the UK. And I know that part of that was people holding off and uh, waiting to see how things were sorted out and all that, but some of it's going to continue as well. And the point of Brexit is that it changes the, it changes the uh, calculation for a lot of companies in terms of where to do business and how to do business. And, you know, it's going to, as, as economists said from the start, this is going to have a long-term impact and the long-term impact is going to be less trade with the, with the UK, between the UK and Ireland. I think the second point is that while the consequences for us in, in, in overall terms uh, may start to ease a bit, that they, they won't for the UK. Uh, and, and the UK is in, appears to be in increasing difficulties in a lot of sectors. Um, the reports come out, coming out of there are still pretty shocking in terms of uh, the impact is having on a lot of companies there. Uh, it's going to be a long-lasting impact. I think if, were it not for the pandemic, uh, there would be a lot more fuss about that. And I guess the political uh, gain for Boris Johnson from vaccination is that it, maybe it's allowing him to cover up a lot of that and the British economy can, can get out of the pandemic quicker and maybe people will forget about Brexit. But the point is that forecasters said from the start that Brexit was going to be a big cost and the biggest cost was going to be to the British economy. And I think the evidence since is, is proving that to be correct. All right, plenty to chew on there. Uh, my thanks to Danny McCoy and Cliff Taylor for joining Inside Business. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Danny McCoy and Cliff Taylor. Jennifer Ryan produced the show with JJ Vernon on sound. 
Remember, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care and happy Easter. 